Mac Power Users, episode 424, Workflows with Mike Schmitz. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with my pal, David Sparks. How are you, David? Hello, Katie Floyd. I miss you. I just saw you a week or two ago. Now we're back to this thing where we're sitting at desks talking to microphones. I know. It'll be a whole nother year, I think, probably before we, we get together again. But um, but I'm excited. We we have a we have a great show today. Uh, we are talking to gosh, I don't even know what kind of kind of title to give Mike. He is a, a podcaster. He's a writer. He's a screencaster. He's an all around kind of tech and productivity guru. Um, so we want to welcome Mike Schmitz to the show. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Although I feel the word guru is a little bit of a lofty title. <laughs> wonder about this and and i wonder how to do it myself like when, when people ask you so you know uh, what do you do which is kind of the, the standard you know cocktail party talk i was like hmm well you know well, dave and i got it easy because we just said we're lawyers that's fine yeah oh oh no you never <laughs> say that never 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 i always say i'm a writer well people usually think it's boring and so then they just move on very quickly and you're like okay yes goodbye walk away no they always like when they find a if they find a lawyer they got a problem they want me to solve for them it's just some area of law i've never practiced before every time so i just i'm a writer what, what do you write oh just tech stuff nothing you know and that that always puts them off but Mike is a super nerd. I think that's the the proper nerd, the proper term for you, Mike. Is that okay? That's not offensive, right? No, I'll I'll take it. In fact, I I shared with my my kids that the the word geek uh, originated from the circus, and it originally meant somebody who's able to do amazing feats. And so, if you walk up to my ten year old and say, "Hey, you're a nerd," he'll say, "Thank you." <laughs> All right, so is a geek is the circus term or nerd is the circus term? I think it was. I think it's a geek, but they they're kind of used inter- interchangeably. And uh, yeah, I'm not not ashamed to call myself a nerd. Yeah, I think somebody told me once if you argue about the difference between nerd and geek, then you're a nerd. So I, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but all right, super geek, Mike Schmitz. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Um, Mike is as Kenny was saying. Mike is a writer. He does a bunch of work over at AsianEfficiency.com. Uh, he wrote his own book, um, Thou Shalt Hustle, which is kind of a productivity take from a Christian perspective. Is that a fair summary, I guess? Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's really getting into the why behind all the things, which I think whether you share my belief system or not, pretty much everybody can kind of resonate with that. There's a lot of stuff in the productivity space recently about minimalism, essentialism, and it's really not just being efficient, but being effective, doing the, the right things. And so I try to uh, to teach other people how to do the best with what they have to work with. And I'll tell you how you really came on my radar, Mike, is um, I, I was dealing with my own little productivity crisis in 2017 and decided I got to kind of get my act together better. I wanted to read some productivity books. Unlike you, uh, I have this visceral reaction to reading productivity books because they, they often feel to me like a lot of snake oil. Uh, but I knew my friend Joe Bulig had a really good podcast called Bookworm with this guy named Mike Schmidt. So I started listening to you and Joe, and you guys were, became my vetting system. Like I would, if there was a book, I w- people would tell me I need to read. I'd listen to your podcast because, gang, on Bookworm, these guys listen read a book every two weeks. I think it is. Is it two weeks or a week? It's, it's two weeks. It's every two weeks officially for the podcast, and then we usually have a gap book in between, which is Joe's idea. He's an overachiever. 
<laughs> but so, and, yeah, and Joe, Joe's been on the show before. Joe's great. And so, so Joe and Mike, every two weeks, they, re, they record and publish a podcast where they take some productivity book and they break it down and explain kind of what the book's about and what their thoughts are about it. And so you became my vetting system. So as I, I didn't, I, I certainly haven't read everything you guys talk about. I haven't even listened to all the shows, to be honest, but I have listened to a bunch of them for books that I was interested in. It really helped me find some books that helped me sort my act out. And uh, thanks for that. So that's a great podcast. But you also do the productivity show, which is uh, that's part of Asian efficiency, right? Yep, that's the official Asian efficiency podcast. I helped launch it from the technical side. And then the host of that Zachary Sexton, he left to do his own thing, maybe about a year and a half ago. And so uh, at that point, uh, we we're trying to figure out what do we do to keep this thing going, and I'm like, well, I'll I'll try it, <laughs> and it's gone pretty well since. Yeah, and um, and you you do screencast for Don over at Screencast Online too, so you do some of their coursework. Yep, and in fact, I met Don at uh, MacStock, which I know is on the on the outline. But I uh, weaseled my way into speaking there one year. Don was there, and I walked up to him and said, "Hey, I'd like to make screencast for you." And he's like, "Oh, okay, sure." <laughs> Don is the master of, um, you know, obviously he's the Mac Daddy of screencasting, but he's also the master. He's got a quite the the production rig of, of, of outsourcing work to other people. We should talk to Don about that. I know we've talked to him about screencasting and, and the magazine and all that kind of stuff, but he's got a great system for that. I've already emailed him. He's already agreed. So we're going to do that. That's, that's <laughs> going to be coming up in the next three or four months or so where that's on the calendar. So, uh, yeah, so we're gonna have Don to talk about that, but I mean, getting back to my, the beginning of the show, Mike is a super geek. He's a writer, podcaster, screencaster, but just a really genuine, you know, honest guy who's, who's concerned about helping people get better at things. And so of course we had to get you on our show. So that was a very long introduction. Uh, welcome to the Mac power users, Mike. <laughs> Thanks. I am very excited to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your gear? What kind of Apple stuff are you driving? Sure. Uh, I've got a 2016 Touch Bar MacBook Pro, a 15-inch, which uh, I got because I was doing a lot of video work and my 13-inch MacBook Pro without a video card was not cutting it anymore. I would export a five-minute ScreenFlow file, and it would take 45 minutes. And then when I switched over to the one that had the, my current Mac, which has the, the video card... I could export a 45-minute screen flow in about five minutes, so it was definitely a, a good investment. I know some people don't like the the keyboards or they have issues with the touch bar. I'm just happy that I have uh, a, a video card <laughs> in my, my laptop. A friend of mine was telling me that I have to go buy the iMac Pro. A, a good friend that a lot of our listeners will know, oh, you have to get the iMac Pro. You you do all this rendering of all these screencasts. And for me, when, when I do a long one, like the OmniFocus Video Field Guide is like three hours or something, uh, that's an excuse for me to go pull weeds. I'm okay. I don't do them that often that I need to spend $5,000 on my iMac, but I, I get it. So, but you were, so you were coming from a, a real slow machine. So even like slow screen, uh, short screencasts were taking a long time to render. Yeah, exactly. And so it was a big step up for me. And to be honest, I didn't export them enough that that was causing me to lose like an hour of work every day while I was waiting for my, my computer or anything. I was like, you would just make, I go do something else whenever my my uh, computer was was busy, but once I did get the the 15 inch that I have now, uh, and it went significantly faster, it it definitely made me smile. <laughs> Do you use the Touch Bar at all? A little bit. I really like Touch ID. I pretty much use it for nothing else. <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost like they just need to put Touch ID in, or maybe even better, Face ID at some point. But so many people love Touch ID. I haven't heard from that many people that love the Touch Bar though. 
No, I got real excited when I saw the demos. And I know that there's some applications that have implemented clever uses of it, but I just never think to look there, especially when I have it set up. Like as we're recording this, I'm at my office in the co-working space and I've got uh, I've got it on a on a stand. It's plugged into a, an OWC Thunderbolt three dock, so it's got all my my gear, and I just have to unplug the one cable whenever I you know, I pack up and go home for the day. Uh, but I've also got a cheap 4K monitor that I've got from Monoprice, which I've had no issues with. I think it was like three hundred bucks. But having a second monitor makes a huge difference, at least for the type of stuff that I do. So do you do you use it in clamshell all the time, or do you also use it with the monitor and the laptop open? I leave it open. So it's a second screen, but I usually have like right now I've got logic up on that screen just so I can make sure that there's no issues while we're recording. Uh, it's not minimized, so I don't have to open it periodically. I can just glance over at the the MacBook Pro as it's sitting open for me. And I've got Skype and the show notes and stuff open on the on the big screen right in front of me. Katie, I've kind of lost track. Are you still using your external monitor or are you just on the 13-inch MacBook Pro now? No way. I could still be on just the 13-inch MacBook Pro. I actually, and I, I've got a link to it. I'll, I'll put it. I ended up buying the wire cutters pick for a 24-inch 4K I'm, I'm sorry. Is that right? Yeah, 24-inch 4K monitor. I was like, that seems small. But no, that's small for a TV. It's it's okay size for a monitor. Um, the the 27-inch 5K monitor I thought was a little too big for me. And so it's a Dell, which bothers me every time I look at it. But it was like 300 bucks or so. And it's it's a beautiful monitor. And I just could not shell down the money that Apple wanted for, for their monitor. And I'm I'm very happy with it. You should just like put some black paint on it and then like handwrite in like Commodore or uh, Atari just for yeah, fun. I'm, I'm looking for a sticker <laughs> that just will fit right there. Yeah. Um, what about iOS, Mike? Are you uh, carrying any iOS devices? I am. I've got an iPhone 10 or iPhone X <laughs> uh, that I absolutely love. It took me a little bit to get used to Face ID, but it really does feel like the future. Uh, there's still a couple couple instances you know here or there when it doesn't work or i realize that you know i'm laying down on the couch and it can't recognize my face so i have to sit, i have to sit up and look at it uh but i just i, I really think that that's just going to continue to get better and that's the 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 actual touch id button on on an iphone is going to feel it's, it's going to feel really really old really fast yeah, the rumors are they're going to get rid of that pretty soon, but I guess we'll see. I was walking around Chicago a couple of weeks ago in like 20 degree weather, which as a California person is is unbearable. But the uh, I really appreciated the the face ID wearing gloves where I was able to get, you know, directions and stuff on my phone without having to take my gloves off. That was kind of nice. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Uh, I'm in the Midwest, so I'm a few hours north of of Chicago, uh, and I definitely have encountered that same same use case where you, you it's cold, you don't want to take your gloves off. Uh, the only thing I can say, uh, I had a recent negative experience with that because I was trying to I was listening to a podcast while I was uh, trying to snowblow my driveway, and because I had my gloves on, I was trying to hit the uh, the volume up button. It turned out I hit the power button five times and ended up calling nine one one by accident. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So, so pro tip for that. And, and you've probably know this now and, uh, but for our listeners, apparently that's an issue. Uh, apparently there's a problem because Apple has, has made it so easy. And I understand why they put this feature in 
to, to call emergency services. This is an issue that people are doing it accidentally, but it's also a huge issue where the 911 call centers that are um, the, the dedicated call centers for Apple repair depots are, are getting tremendous number of, of um, inadvertent 911 calls. Um, I, I don't know if that's because the texts are inadvertently calling 911 or whether it's because something's wrong with these phones or, or what's going on. But there's actually um, a feature in settings uh, where you can go on and actually require that you then not only just press and hold or press five times, but then make an additional swipe gesture before you call emergency services. I, I guess, you know, if, if you're in a true emergency and you need to discreetly and quickly call 911, that could be a problem, but it also could probably stop a lot of accidental emergency calls. Yeah, and I heard you talk about that on a Mac Power Users episode, and I thought to myself, there's no way I'll ever do that, so I don't need to go change that setting, <laughs> but it's changed now. <laughs> yeah, I will tell you, my my happy medium for that, I turn that setting off on the watch, too, because um, particularly sometimes I find that if I'm, you know, working or if I'm on my... Um, if if my hand is bent just right, a lot of times I, I can sometimes accidentally trigger that on the watch. I was like, oh, I don't I don't ever want to do that. But I really like having the um, the emergency feature on the watch because I feel like even if I can't get to my phone, I, I can probably pretty discreetly get to it and trigger it from my watch if I need to. You know, I fix that on my watch by switching the crown to the left side, you know, I guess. Yeah, you can do the flip. Yeah. I, I, one of the listeners was giving me a, a ton of grief about that at the meetup. But it's really nice because, unfortunately, uh, you activate Syria all the time if you have the crown facing your wrist. And they do have a setting. You can change it. And you get used to it very quick. I also find it easier to push the buttons with my thumb on the uh, with the uh, crown on the flip side as well. I did try that, too, because I've got an Apple Watch Series 3 non-LTE. Uh, I tried flipping it at one point, but it just didn't didn't feel right for me. Give it a week. Give it a week. But but I want to go back because you said something that I'm still thinking about. You said you wanted to listen to a podcast while blowing snow while using the <laughs> snowblower. Yep. <laughs> what kind of headphones are you using to be able to hear that over the snowblower? <laughs> uh, just the AirPods, actually. Uh, what? Put put them on oh, under, wait, uh, wait, wait, under wait, a winter you're, hat. You're wearing white <laughs> AirPods in the snow. <laughs> yeah, it's probably probably asking for uh, asking for one of them to be lost. But you know, when you've got when you're fully decked out and it's the middle of the polar vortex, it's negative thirty with without the wind chill. You know, you you bundle up. So got a pretty heavy winter hat that secures those AirPods. They're not going anywhere. It's like the Elmer Fudd hats, right, with the little flappy ears. I have one of those. Yep. There you go. That'll keep your AirPods secure in. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought about that. I'm from California. I don't even know what this stuff is. The uh, I have the same issue once in a while with the leaf blower. Like I need to get out and clean the yard, and sometimes I want to listen to a podcast or a book on tape. And and in that case, I run up and get my uh, my noise canceling Bose because I have the they, they're my podcast headphones as well. And but I don't like doing that so much because when I'm working in the yard, they get sweaty and gross, and I wear them for podcasts. So for some reason they're kind of sacred to me so yeah i see people wear those once in a while at the gym and i'm always wondering like how can you do that because yeah that would be my first inclination is that they're going to get sweaty and gross and stink within a week <laughs> well i so i guess the um the airpods with all the other gear on top of them is enough of a noise canceller that you can still hear a show while you're doing your work nice yeah, I've been really impressed with the AirPods. They do a pretty decent job. I know they're not noise canceling, but I do have a pair of Bose QC35s that I used to travel with all the time. And a lot of times now I leave those in my bag and I just use the AirPods. You know, if there's a, a kid that's screaming behind me or if it's my kid, <laughs> I'll pull them out maybe. But uh, the AirPods sound great and they, they do a pretty good job. 
Oh man, I would I couldn't disagree more. I love those noise canceling headphones on an airplane. It is so nice just to kind of cut all that stuff out. But I want to talk to you about something else because Mike, we've had a lot of people on our on our show. We've had arguments about clicky keyboards versus non clicky keyboards. And when you and I were talking the other day to prep for today's show, you told me something, and you are the very first person on this show. What four hundred and twenty two episodes that has. One of those weird keyboards that has no letters on it. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, so this was a productivity experiment that I did for an article that I wrote a while back at Asian Efficiency. Uh, I had heard a lot of people talk about the benefits of the clicky keyboard, and I found one at uh, a pawn shop that I bought used, and and I got it. Uh, it was a little bit gross, so I was cleaning everything, and I'm like, I just I should just get new keycaps, and then. I thought to myself, you know, what if I got blank keycaps? I bet that would make me a better touch typist. So I did an experiment and I, I have it pulled up in front of me here. The initial test that I did, I'm not super fast on a, uh, on a keyboard, but when I started my MacBook keyboard, I was 65 words per minute and I've got a DOS keyboard. I think it's a 4C uh, with the blank keycaps. I was at 48 words per minute. Uh, after a one week, it was up to 55 words per minute. By the end of almost three weeks, it was 68 words per minute. So the end result of this experiment was that I did become a better touch typist, and I can now type faster on my blank keyboard than I can on my the keyboard on my MacBook Pro. So I will I will chime in with that too. I'm a pretty fast typist. At one point, I, I don't think I can do it currently, but at one point I was typing 110 plus words a minute. Uh, probably now I'm my normal was probably 60, 70. I ended up with some RSI issues and and had to change my my habits and and slow things down. She's like Icarus. She flew too close to the sun. I did the <laughs> um the the best class and and people always ask me is like you know what what's the advice you would give blah blah blah. The best class I ever took in high school was typing. It's it's the class that to this day I I use every day. I don't even know do they still teach typing in high school. But I never truly learned how to type until I walked into my high school typing class on that IBM two extended keyboard and there were no keys. I think there was an F and a J key for finger placement. And man, when there are no keys on that keyboard, you learn how to type. And I I I highly recommend it. So parents, if you're trying to teach your kids how to type or, you know, give, give them a, get, go get a keyboard or go buy blank keycaps with, with no keys in, and your kids will learn how to type. You can be a touch typist. It freaks people out at, um, when, when I'm sitting there and they're talking to me and I'm looking at them, uh, you know, with my head turned at like a 45 degree angle and just typing away. And they're like, stop it. What are, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm like, I'm sorry. What? Yeah, it's, it's even worse when your keyboard has no letters on it because they have no idea how you're able to hit the right keys. Yeah, I wonder, though, if this experiment, Mike, was just you getting making yourself a better typist with a keyboard with no labels on. Like if you went back to a keyboard with labels on it, I would assume that your typing speed is about the same because now you're more confident. Yeah, I think it probably is. Uh, and actually, as we're recording this, I have just ordered because uh, I'm finishing off an office in our basement. So I'm getting gear for there as well. I ordered one of those code keyboards. And that one does have keycaps on it uh, because that's the way that it, it comes stock. I mean, I could buy replacement blank keycaps, but I've found that there are a a few cases where I really do wish I could see what I was typing <laughs> uh, when I'm entering passwords that, you know, I can't use one password for, for example. 
uh, stuff like that, where it really is handy to know exactly what you're what you're typing or you're trying to reproduce, you know, something uh, on the screen, and you really have to make sure you're 100 percent accurate. Uh, it, it is difficult, but uh, I, I think that you know the, the value I've, I've gotten from it. I don't know that if I were to have to replace this keyboard, that I would choose a, a blank one. So, which which uh, switches did you get on your code keyboard? You know, the, this is whenever you get into keyboards, you got to tell me which cherry color is your favorite. I got the cherry blues, which I think are the loudest ones. I mean, you can kind of hear as I'm maybe typing out right now. You know, it's. It's pretty loud, <laughs> uh, which isn't a huge deal for me at the co-working space because I've got my own office and the door is closed. But uh, I wasn't always in my own office, and it definitely did annoy some people. But I just really like the the click. It's very satisfying, especially as a writer. When you see words going across your screen and you hear that audible click every time you hit the keyboard, you just want to keep going. Yeah, I, I used to be into the clicky keyboards, but I was having... Uh, I don't. I don't want to call it RSI issues, but my fingers were getting sore. I think with the amount of travel, because as I when I switched to an Apple keyboard, it went away, and there's very little travel, and that seems to help me. But we've probably gone down this rabbit hole far enough. Except, I, except I would add, I went to a friend's house recently. He had all of the cherry switches. You know, you can buy the little thing with one of each of the switches, and that was fascinating to me how how different they are. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander. Automate your life and save time with Text Expander on your Mac, iPad, and iPhone. To learn more and get 20% off, go to textexpander.com slash podcast and make sure to let them know you heard about it at the Mac Power Users. Text Expander is an excellent tool for personal productivity. I use it every day and have literally saved days of my life using text expander snippets to speed up typing and responses with text on my Mac, iPad, and iPhone. I also use text expander in my company. I have a text expander for teams account that I bought a few years ago, and my assistant has now access to the team text expander snippets for the Mac Sparky global media empire. As a result, when we're responding to inquiries from customers or dealing with some of the various problems and questions we have in email, I have created canned responses that are shared in this library. Now, my assistant knows the text expander snippets. She's got it installed on her computer, and she can just automatically send those snippets out as I prepare them. One of the nice things about this is sometimes the contents of those canned snippets need to change, and I can go ahead and make that change on my Mac, and then they automatically appear on hers. This is the advantage of Text Expander for Teams. With Text Expander for Teams, you have integrated Text Expander online service and apps. You can access all your snippets on all your devices with each user account, and current snippets and edits appear everywhere. You can share them easily with coworkers. You can pick who can edit them and who cannot. You can set up the organization to manage and share the snippets within your team. And you can automatically join an organization using your company email address. Everything is simplified. And I find it really useful. I'm really glad I have this service. And if you've got a small business or even a big one, maybe you should consider Text Expander Teams yourself. It's a great way to save time unify the message to your customers, and get your work done so you can get home and have fun. To learn more, head over to textexpander.com slash podcast. Now, when you go there, you're going to get 20% off, but just make sure to let them know you heard about it here on the Mac Power Users. Thanks, Text Expander, for all of your support. 
Mike, another thing you do that uh, that I wanted to talk to you about, we, this is something we've circled around on Mac Power Users, but we've never really given it proper treatment, is uh, sleep tracking and just that whole, you know, nerd side of sleeping. And you're actually kind of deep into this. So uh, tell us what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I use an app called Sleep Cycle on my iPhone, which uses the microphone to track where you are in your sleep cycle. So very high level. When you fall asleep, you're in kind of this lighter sleep. And as as the, uh, as the you stay asleep, you go down into deep sleep or REM sleep, the rapid eye movement sleep. That's where a lot of the restorative stuff happens. And then you come back up. And there's generally about five of these cycles that would take place in any one full night's sleep. Uh, so sleep cycle kind of charts this, but then what it does is it, you set your alarm, let's say for six in the morning, it'll actually start looking for the optimal time to wake you up between five thirty and six. And the alarm will go off at that specific time. But what's cool about sleep cycles that it also integrates with Philips Hue lights. So I've also used, I think on Amazon, you can buy like a Philips wake up light where it just generally gets gradually gets brighter and brighter as it gets closer to the time that you want to wake up. Uh, and that simulates a sunrise. It helps bring you up out of that deep sleep naturally. And the idea is that you wake up and you're not groggy. You're ready to, to hit the hit the ground running. And so sleep cycle with Hue lights kind of gives you the best of, of both, where in addition to monitoring and sounding the alarm at the appropriate time, your Hue lights can gradually get brighter and brighter as you uh, and that helps your body come up out of the, the deep sleep so that, you know, you're woken up at the optimal time when you're just you're just barely in, in the lightest sleep uh, possible. And then uh, you don't have to fight through that feeling like you just got hit by a truck or, you know, it takes you two hours to, to wake up and feel productive. Now, does does the light turn on before the first sleep cycle alarm, or does it start with the sleep cycle alarm going off? It actually starts at the beginning of the window, uh, and then it gets gradually brighter. So if you were to wake up at the beginning of that window, like at 5.30, if you hit for a 6 o'clock alarm, uh, it would it would not be super bright, although I haven't stayed awake to to see that it actually does this. But I have noticed that uh, later on in in the the, the wake up window, uh, my light's pretty bright by the time that I wake up. And sometimes I'll wake up, you know, at, at the beginning of the cycle, and it's uh, it's still like ramping up. It's still lower uh, lower intensity. Does the sleep cycle help you? I mean, it, it is an interesting idea of using science and technology to figure out what's the optimal time to wake you up. Uh, but do you notice a difference using it? Well, I've noticed a difference personally, which is really all you can say in this area, because there's lots of research that says, yes, it makes a difference. There's lots of people who will say, I haven't noticed a difference. Um, my situation is a little bit unique because when I was 18, I was diagnosed with epilepsy. I actually had a seizure standing in line at a McDonald's. Unfortunately, there was a, a nurse in line who could keep me safe until the ambulance came. And uh, I've been on medication since then. Uh, so the medication makes me more drowsy. And one of the things that can trigger a seizure is not getting enough sleep. So I have been very careful about both the 
quantity and the quality of the sleep that I get from from that point on. You know, because I, I tried Sleep Cycle years ago. It wasn't the microphone. In fact, isn't Sleep Cycle the one that will record you snoring too? Or is that a different one? I forget now. Yep. It'll record you snoring. And it used to be you had to stick it like under your sheet right by your head. And I stopped using it because of that. But now they've got the, the microphone. I just put it on the nightstand by my, my bed and it works fine. Yeah. See, I, I, I used it back when you stuck it under your pillow and, uh, and you had that cord going to your phone on your pillow. It just seems silly to me. But the thing for me was I always felt like if it wakes me up 30 minutes early, that's 30 minutes of less sleep I get in the night. Wouldn't I be better just getting sleep until 6 a.m. and roughing it out? And I'm sure there's somebody listening to our show that probably knows the exact answer to that question and we'll hear about it. But Please email David. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it'd be interesting for follow-up, frankly. I, I'm sure there's been some science on it. But, uh, but I do like the idea of sleep tracking and just kind of doing better at that stuff. About a year ago, I started sleep tracking as well. And especially with the new Apple Watches where the batteries are so strong, where um, I throw my Apple Watch on the charger at some point during the day, I'll put it on the charger for like 45 minutes because you don't want to leave it on over an hour because you've got to get your standing credit at some point, right? you got to get up and move around. But it's actually a great use for the HomePod is to, to set a timer and stick your watch in the in the um, charger at your desk. But then I just wear it to bed every night and I use an app called Auto Sleep which tracks your sleeping without you having to push any buttons to start it. And I think it does an okay job. I, I, you know, I, I never feel like the data you get out of these things is ideal, but it's, it's, it's relative and you can compare it to the night before and see how you're doing. And that's, that's consistent. But one of my big uh, reasons I love it is because I wake up pretty early and, and I don't want to wake up my wife. So with the watch on, you can put on a silent, you know, tap alarm and just it taps your wrist and I wake up and then I get rolling. But uh, I just can't, you know, I haven't really got into these, you know, uh, um, sleep status, you know, trackers like sleep cycle. So I am curious about it. I, I'd love to hear what people are doing. Maybe we'll talk about that in the Facebook group. Well, that, that surprises me a little because you are going to all the trouble to track your sleep at night. Is it is it really just for the alarms or to see what happened? I, I guess get I tra- sleep tracking. I get to see how often I woke up and I get to see if I'm sleeping well or not. But the, the point where I'm diverging from Mike is you don't care about waking up at a specific time in your cycle. Exactly. I, I, I always felt like I just would rather get more sleep because, you know, that I think the quantity of sleep is important. In fact, uh, I just listened to this book, uh, this bookworm podcast with this guy you might know, Mike, <laughs> and they read a book about how important it is to get enough sleep. So that's like even more reason to kind of stay in bed as long as you can. The non-scientific answer is that all the restorative stuff happens when you're in the rapid eye movement sleep, the REM sleep, but you're not there very long. And so, uh, I mean, I could share, I've got a screenshot here of a standard night, my sleep, sleep cycle. You can kind of see the dips and what you need is a certain number of those complete cycles in order for your body to completely recharge. But once you are in the REM sleep, like once that cycle is over, there's not a whole lot more that's that's happening other than, you know, your your body's ramping up. And so at that point, I'm not sure that additional sleep that's not in that cycle makes a whole lot of difference. Yeah, there there's an app uh, by the same guys who make um, auto sleep. They make an app called auto wake, which it works the same way. It's based on your Apple watch and it's it's following your REM cycles and will wake you up. Maybe I'll, I'll install it and give it a try and see if that makes any difference. 
So Mike, have you, have you found any information besides just waking up kind of at a, at a better time, but has this helped you get better, better sleep? Have you found any changes that you can make or gained any information? Or I guess same question to David too. I, I have not been tracking my sleep. I, I haven't really kind of figured out the, the use case for that, but I mean, certainly we all would like to sleep better. Have you been able to take this information and then actually turn it into action points or, or things that help you get more or better sleep? Well, there's a whole bunch of stuff in sleep cycle that I don't really use. Like there's sleep notes and things like that, where you can jot down, you know, what you ate for dinner before you went to bed or when the last time you ate stuff like that. Had coffee at four o'clock and (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't get into it that deeply. I really just want to know from a high level what's going on. And some of the things that I noticed was that when I was using my devices late at night, uh, the blue light was keeping me awake. I had a much harder time falling asleep. And as I mentioned with the being diagnosed with epilepsy, like that's, that's no good. So I've been using flux, uh, for many years. I'm, I'm thrilled that Apple started implementing a uh, night shift, but in my opinion, it doesn't do nearly as good a job as, as flux does, which makes sense. I mean, if you go to the flux website, they've got a whole section devoted to the research behind that. Um, but I, I don't really, I'm not really that interested in, in gaining a whole bunch of information, I want to know the stuff that's going to make the difference. And so there's a few things that I've noticed from anecdotally from uh, my experience using this type of stuff, but I don't dig super deep into the weeds because I think that you can get really distracted with that kind of stuff and look for things and patterns that aren't really there. Yeah. The way I use it is if I, sometimes I have a day where it's just hard for me to focus or I may feel sleepy when I don't normally. And I will take a look at my data and compare it to prior days. And quite often that happens on days where not surprisingly, I don't sleep that well. And um, so that's the kind of information I get from it. I, I'm not super like Mike, I'm not super obsessed with it. I don't take notes. I don't, you know, I don't score my sleep. Some of these apps allow you to rate your sleep every morning when you wake up. I don't do any of that stuff, but I do like having the data available uh, for bad days to see if I've got some kind of explanation. Exactly. I think that's the ideal approach is, you know, if you notice something is wrong, ask why and try to figure that out. But don't spend a whole bunch of time jotting down all this information and data that you'll never use. If there really is a pain point to be solved here, like it'll be evident and then you can dig into you know what's actually going on. And, and with the newer Apple Watches, I'd say Series 2 and above, you have no problem sleep tracking if you're willing to wear your watch to bed. Um, and I know that comes with its, you know, my wife still looks at me funny, like you're wearing your watch to bed. Oh yeah, I am. But the, uh, the trick there is to put it in theater mode before you go to sleep. And that way, as you're moving your arms around in your sleep, it doesn't light up the room and bother your, your spouse or your significant other. Yeah. I've got one of those little, they look like the classic Macs that you can put your, your watch in with the the charger. So it goes into nightstand mode and it's got the big block letters and it looks like the, the classic Apple, Apple Mac. Uh, and I just like putting it in there. Uh, when I had a original Apple watch, my battery needed to be charged every night, but now that I've got the series three, you're right. That's at 75% at the end of the day. There's, I would have no problem wearing it through the night, but I just, I don't know. It feels it feels weird. I've also got some leather bands that I typically wear, and I I don't want those to get gross either. Well, you get one of those fabric breathable bands, and then you can throw it in the charger. And I, I by the way, I have the same charger too. I love it. 
my little Mac, but it's on my desk. I don't even keep it next to the bed because the times that convenient for me to charge it is when I'm sitting at my desk. But often I'll do it like in the morning after I finish my morning walk and I go take a shower, I'll drop the watch into the charger. And then at some point in the afternoon, I'll put it in the charger for 30 minutes or so and I'm good. All right. Well, I think we've uh, we've exhausted that one. But if someone out there really has some authority about whether I should be having it wake me up on my cycle or let it let my let me sleep until six and just, you know, blast away. I'd love to hear from you or, or talk about in the Facebook group. Like I said, there's a lot of good conversations going on in there. Uh, Mike, you wrote a post over at Asian Efficiency that I really enjoyed, and it, it talked about getting more efficient on iOS. And I, I've often felt that iOS, because it's so new and for because a lot of us are traditional Mac users and we understand keyboard shortcuts and things like that, there's a bunch of kind of just under the surface stuff on iOS that if you knew about it, you would be really happy, but you don't discover it short of someone telling you about it or a pure accident. So I thought we might talk through a few of those. Let's start with Safari tabs. Sure. So this is inspired by Dave Ginsburg's talk at uh, MacStock, by the way. I picked up a few of these things from him, and that really just got me thinking about what else is there in iOS that I'm not aware of because there's no menus for you to find this stuff. Um, So this one specifically I got from him. Uh, in, in that talk. But if you long press on the tabs button in Safari, you can actually close all of your tabs at once. It'll give you the option to create a new tab or in the article, I've got a little animated GIF where it shows uh, close nine tabs at, at a time. And those long presses in the 3D touch specifically, like if you're going to take one thing out of this article, it would be long press and 3D touch everything that you can think of because iOS is pretty capable, but you can't see any of those features. Yeah. And I would add to that, there's a bunch of long press things in Safari. So uh, if you if you do it on the tabs button, you can close all the tabs. But if you're in the tabs menu, you like you tap the tabs button, you see the display with all the tabs. Long pressing the done button does the same thing. So you can do it either in the menu or outside of the menu, um, which is pretty handy. And then um, there's one more there that I thought was really handy. It is... um, there's the request the desktop site, which is basically the same thing, but you do it on the, the reload button and then you can choose which version of the website you want to load. And I can't tell you how many times I've, I've unfortunately had to use that because whatever website I'm trying to access, you know, the mobile version is, is garbage and you need to, to see the, the full version in order to get to the, the menu item or the, the feature that you're, you're trying to access. But that's that's a good one, too. Yeah, and, and also long pressing the forward and backward button in Safari brings up a history of forward and backward. So if you know you visited the site, but it was three or four taps ago, long pressing it allows you to it just drop some menu down and you can pick you know which one you want. There's a lot of stuff in there. I mean, Safari's user interface on the iPhone and the iPad is fairly simple, but just, just knowing enough to press those buttons a little bit longer opens up so many ways to move faster through the application. Yeah. And pretty much every Apple application has this sort of stuff built in. There's a bunch of stuff in that post regarding Apple mail as well. So if you were to long press in Apple mail, you can choose between whether you want to archive a message or just delete it, which, you know, if you just look at the menu bar and you're like me and you want to just clear out all these emails, it can be a little bit frustrating because you're like, oh, I don't want to have to go in here or, or, you know, I don't have my swipe set up that way, whatever. Uh, but all of those icons, if you long press them, it's going to give you give you different options. 
And then 3D Touch, and I think at this point, just about everybody listening has probably got a 3D Touch-based phone. When when did that start? I think it was three years ago that 3D Touch showed up for the first time, or was it, I think it was the iPhone 6 I think it was the 6S where you got 3D Touch, yep. Yeah, so it's been around for a while. And that is another undiscovered uh, feature. Now, there's a couple different ways you use it. Use it inside apps all the time. But the one where I think most people miss it is on the actual app launcher when you're in, um, when you're on your desktop, I'm sorry, desktop, when you're on your home screen and you long press on your favorite app icons, there's going to be a bunch of features available to you that you just weren't aware were there. And, and the developers are smart enough to put the most frequently used things. I mean, the, the typical example everybody talks about is the photos app. If you long, if you, I'm sorry, if you 3d press on the photos app, it, it gives you a quick menu to jump to the selfie camera or the pano or the standard camera, but it just gives you a way to just very quickly get the camera exactly where you want it. Yep. I I love that. And I also like, you know, if you have a folder on your, your home screen and it's got a badge icon, if you 3d touch the folder, you can see which applications are showing you notifications. That's a really handy feature. And then another one uh, is if you're in notification center, like you swipe down from the top of your, your screen and you 3d touch the X to clear notifications, you can actually clear all of your notifications at once. But hopefully you don't have that many notifications. We talk about this in the show all the time. You, yeah, hopefully you know, you've got them turned off already. <laughs> uh, but but whatever app it is that you want to use, and and this when the 3D Touch first showed up, it was kind of the the apps that had a 3D Touch feature on their icon were the special snowflakes because there weren't that many. But I'm just looking around my home screen now, and almost every app I use has got stuff like that. Um, and uh, that's really nice. I think that's something everybody should be trying out. Absolutely. Uh, one other thing I'll call out is that people don't realize how powerful Spotlight is. Uh, Brett Terpstra actually gave a talk on Spotlight at, at MacStock last year uh, for the Mac specifically. But there is a lot of things that you can do in the iOS version as well. If you just start searching for something in Spotlight and you have it set up to index your applications that you use all the time, I mean, you can search your message history. You can search uh, things like uh, HipChat or Slack. If you use those messaging apps, it can search the contents of your email and it can give you all the relevant stuff uh, right there. Yeah, even like OmniFocus is hooked into that. So like when I'm looking for a project that I'm working on OmniFocus, sometimes I find it's faster to get there through a spotlight search than actually going in OmniFocus. And uh, and whatever your favorite apps are, if the developer is, is on top of things, they're going to be plugged into that. And just like you can with Safari on the Mac, I, I think you can go in and customize uh, how you see things, where you see things, what goes what goes to the top of those lists, and then turn certain things off if you don't want to see them. Yep, exactly. That's that's one of the things I mentioned in that article, too, is that if you think if you never use uh, Spotlight because it's slow, it's probably because you'd never cho- chosen which apps it can index and it's indexing everything on your on your phone. Uh, but if you, there's certain applications, you just don't need to see those things in a Spotlight search. Turn those off and uh, Spotlight gets a lot faster. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password, the best password solution for your Mac, iPad and iPhone. Go to onepasswordcom MPU in all caps to get 20% off. 
I've been talking a lot lately about 1Password and how strong it is on your iOS devices, but I haven't mentioned the Mac lately. You may not know it, but 1Password released 1Password version 10 last November, and it's really powerful. 1Password 10 has the strongest password generator yet, and it's also the most convenient. When you're setting up for a new web service, right in Safari, for instance, 1Password will go ahead and suggest a password for you right there. You don't have to go to the app or to any menu bar stuff. It just suggests the password. You click one button and it's saved to your 1Password database. But not all websites accept long passwords, so sometimes you may need to go into the app. And when you do, you'll find that the 1Password 10 password generator is also more powerful than ever. In addition to all the other forms of making new passwords, it also has a new service to make a memorable password, where it's a series of unrelated words that string together to make something memorable. If you've got a password somewhere that you want to keep up in your brain as well, this is the solution for you. 1Password also now uses machine learning so it can distinguish between registration forms and sign-in forms. This is really useful as it allows the application to anticipate what you need, and it also helps you automatically save the new password in the appropriate place in 1Password so it's easier to manage your data inside the application. And speaking of your data, 1Password is faster than ever. It can manage that data so fast. I've got over 1,000 items in my 1Password database, and it loads super fast now. In fact, in fact, now it loads up to 30 times faster. So you're going to get into your 1Password data a lot sooner than you ever did before. And there's so much more. They made a ton of improvements to 1Password 10. Go ahead and take a look at it. Put it in, in your Mac. It doesn't matter what browser you use because in addition to Safari and Chrome, 1Password also now supports Vivaldi, Ghost Browser, and coming soon Opera. Even better, they're going to be adding Firefox. So no matter where you do your web browsing, 1Password is there to help you out. So why don't you up your password game and make yourself more secure on the internet? Get yourself a copy of 1Password. Go to onepassword.com slash MPU in all caps, and that way you'll get that 20% off and make us look great. Thanks again, 1Password, for sponsoring the Mac Power Users. Mike, anytime we have a screencaster on the show, I can't help but talk to you a little bit about how you're doing it. Because I, I get that email all the time from people asking me, how are you making your screencast? And for me, it's, I just write back and say, buy ScreenFlow. And that's basically, <laughs> I mean, when I, when I first started, it was super complicated. And we had all these apps that we would record the screen with, and we'd put it in Final Cut, and we do all these effects there. But ScreenFlow has come so far. But but you're doing a lot of different things with, with screencasting and video. And I just kind of wanted to hear what you're up to. <laughs> yeah. Well, I definitely use ScreenFlow as well. And uh, if ScreenFlow had an affiliate program, I'd be rich because I recommend it to everybody. <laughs> but it really is just a, a powerful and also a pretty easy to use uh, application. If you're just getting started with screencasting, I don't think you can go wrong with ScreenFlow. And there's enough there where you can really make it do some pretty impressive things. I know you had JF on, on the show uh, and he knows it way better than, than I do, but I've learned a lot just from being a part of that team and, and some of the stuff that, that they do with ScreenFlow. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very flexible and very powerful uh, application, and it can do more than just screencasting. So I, I really use it two different ways for screencasts online. I'm obviously doing screencasts, and so I am recording my screen as I walk people through how to use a particular application like MindNode, for example. But I also use it for a lot of the stuff that we do at Asian Efficiency. We create these knowledge-based courses, these informational courses, and we create videos using ScreenFlow and Keynote. 
keynote is insanely powerful. I can't believe sometimes that the Apple actually gives us away for free because you can do so much with it. No, I, I agree. And, and so like, so your screen, like, like my screencast as well, you don't do the titling in ScreenFlow. You probably make a quick keynote slide or two, and then you just shoot video of that, of that keynote presentation playing. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, uh, but also like if we're like we have a for Asian efficiency an actual keynote template that we use, uh, which is based off of one of the default templates that comes uh, in Keynote, and so we can drag stuff in there, and it's got prepackaged slides for if you want the image on the right and bullet points on the left. Uh, but where things really get interesting is when you've got a blank. Uh, like a black screen, because a lot of that's kind of the theme that, that that ours is built off of. And then you drop in the elements and you use something like Magic Move to create these animations, which I am not an animator. I know nothing about animation, but I can create some pretty cool animations in Keynote. And it's it's pretty straightforward. Magic Move does a lot uh, for we have an email course. And so one of the animations that uh, is really simple, but it, it looks kind of impressive is you've got this message and you're trying to decide where does this go? Well, you can take that slide, copy it, and then the next slide, you know, drag that message icon to over a, a folder, put the folder in front of the email icon, and then uh, select a magic move transition, and it'll create the animation where the, the letter gets smaller and it zooms into this folder and it looks like it's being consumed by the folder, it's being placed in that folder. And that's just two slides in Magic Move. There's there's not a whole lot of animation knowledge that's required there. Yeah, it's crazy. When I when I was um, do I had a construction defect case once years ago before Magic Move existed, and I would have to animate individual drops of water in this leak problem. And I just remember how many hours and hours it took. And where with Magic Move, that would all just be solved now. Another way to, to another uh, cool trick with that is. Uh, talking about taking an image and moving it with Magic Move, sometimes you want to duplicate it. Like um, when I'm making a demonstration of how something works in the cloud, and you've got the icon on your on your uh, your computer, so you've got an image of a Mac, and you've got an image of the cloud, and you want to say, but that's going to go to the phone too. So you put an image of the iPhone. So you've got three images: the cloud, the Mac, the iPhone, and you create one on one device, and then but you create three copies of it, and Nobody can see because Keynote's so great, it lines them up right on top of each other. And then you just animate the two to go to the, the cloud and to the, the iPhone. And with a very simple trick like that, Magic Move, you've just done animation that used to take uh, paying a professional to pull off. And it looks great. Exactly. It's so easy. Like literally anybody can do this stuff if you just understand a few basic concepts about Keynote. Uh, another thing that uh, I figured out at one point, because I was I was stuck, I was trying to make this gauge, uh, and it was to show, like, you're increasing your productivity. So the gauge was labeled productivity, and I wanted this needle to go from, like, empty to full. And so I had this, I, I broke apart the parts of the image, I had the gauge, and then I had the needle on top of it, but when I tried to rotate the needle, it just got kind of wonky, and it, it didn't look like it was rotating off a specific point. So... Again, just in Keynote, what I did is I copied that uh, that needle and then I flipped it horizontally and flipped it vertically. So I had one pointing the other way, made that one transparent, 
and then grouped those together, rotated the whole thing off of that center point. Now it looks like the, the needle goes smoothly from empty to full. There's just so much stuff like that that you can do in Keynote. Yeah, you just got to fiddle with it a little bit. And uh, it's all, I mean, Magic Move is responsible for a lot of it. But, you know, the other thing that's great about Keynote is it's got those um, design guides where as you drag things around the screen, they automatically line up. As you resize them, they automatically conform to the size of other objects on the screen. Um, you know, that, that's a code base that Apple uses kind of throughout the iWork apps and even iBooks Author. And it's so useful to have that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It really makes it easy to become not a layout professional, but but kind of. I mean, I know nothing about design, but I can create slides that look pretty professional using those snap to grids. It'll tell me, you know, this is in line with, with this thing. And that's really handy. Uh, one other thing that I've figured out with, with Keynote when I spoke at MacStock last year, which was kind of interesting, um, is... I I I, need, I gave a talk on email and I wanted to show notifications coming in uh, through my email client and I wasn't sure that I was going to have good internet I wasn't sure that I was going to have a good connection um, and I wanted these things to fire at precisely the right moment so what I did is I created a screen flow the day before of the notification that I wanted to appear. And I took that screen flow, cut it up into smaller video pieces and put those videos uh, in keynote slides. And so when I gave the presentation, I had the clicker in my hand. I did not have to stand behind the podium and use my computer. I could talk about what was going to happen. And when I was ready to move on to the next piece, I would just hit the button on the clicker and it would look like I had programmed this keyboard maestro macro or something on my computer and it was doing all these things and then the notification appeared at just the right time played the sound at just the right time uh but that's a really cool trick that i know a couple people were pretty impressed with but uh I, it's it's a great it's a great tool like it, you can use it a lot of different ways but i really like uh the the way i really like using it for live presentations like that um i, I do that pretty much every time i give a talk now i don't rely on my computer functioning exactly the way i think it's going to whenever i have to give a talk yeah for years katie and i gave talks at the hilton in chicago where the conference center's in the basement and there was just no internet so everybody got really good at screencasting all the important stuff and so the problem that that mike's explaining is that when you embed a video in keynote uh, it starts playing the video. You can pause the video with a keyboard command or certain remotes can do it. But I find that whole process to be unreliable and you don't want to be slave to your keyboard anyway while the presentation is playing. So uh, what you do is you make the whole video, but then you break it up into individual pieces. You can do that in ScreenFlow. You can also do it in QuickTime. Uh, just make a bunch of copies and you break it into pieces. I did a, an example of Ulysses just a few weeks ago in Chicago and I did the same thing. I had uh, a video that had three stopping points in it. So rather than have one video slide in Keynote where I would try to manually stop it and hope that I got it in exactly the right place and didn't let it run too long and all those problems you have, you just break it into three slides and you break it the three pieces of video because Keynote will stop when it gets to the end of the video and then you can talk. And you just click on your clicker, it goes to the next slide. If you tell it to auto play, it starts the video right up again. And it makes it look like you're some kind of wizard when all you've done is just broken the video up into three different pieces you know 
and and so many of the things in keynote are just that simple i mean uh, i feel like um back when i first started practicing law we would go to the slide guy and we'd pay him like 80 bucks for a big slide of something so in your head it got you you made this weird equation where extra slides cost extra money and uh when if you can just offload that and realize in keynote slides are free um, there's nothing wrong with adding extra slides for builds with Magic Move, and and you can solve a whole bunch of problems by just throwing a couple extra slides in there and um, and doing something like we're talking about with the video. He could have had 20 stopping points in his video. He would just needed 20 clips. It would have worked just the same. Yep, exactly. But it eliminates all of the stress of trying to do this thing live and at least for me, you know, I'm, my mind is always going worst case scenario and I'm not even concentrating about the information that I'm sharing because I'm thinking about, oh, is this thing going to do exactly what I want it to do? You eliminate all of that when you just break it down and put it in Keynote. If you really want to be a wizard, uh, what you do is what Mike described, you break the video up into pieces. And then when you get to the end of the video play, then add manual um manual annotations or um, animations to it where like draw a circle around something on the screen that you want to point out at this point of the video. And so you have that fade in after the video plays right on top of the video that just played. And then you press again and it fades out and the video resumes and it makes it look like, well, how is he doing that? It's, it's not hard. It's just being, being deliberate and breaking it down into steps. <laughs> yep, exactly. And for me, it was simply just figuring out a way to make the talk less stressful. <laughs> yeah. And, and so going back to the kind of the point is you, you build these things in Keynote. And I feel like there's almost a show, Katie, where we just talk about things you can do with Keynote that are not Keynote presentations, because there there is a lot of those things. But I, the, I think um, we've done that show, though. I think have we? we? Show. I've yeah. lost track. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. We've done a few. Okay. I will I will uh, go find the link for that and put it in the show notes. But the um, but there's just so much you can do. But so so you build this video and you're not talking to a room. Then you just uh, play the video in full screen, and you turn on ScreenFlow to start recording the screen, and you perform that keynote. In essence, you can either do it with the mic on and ScreenFlow all at once, or you can just record the slides and then you can do the audio later. But um, that is a great way to make some really nice looking videos um, that you can share, whether you're in sales or whatever you do um, with a combination of ScreenFlow and Keynote. Yeah, I get people who ask all the time, like, how did you do that animation? And I tell them Keynote, and they're like, what? No way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Feels like you're cheating. Yeah. Mike, you've talked uh, a few times. You've mentioned um, the MaxDoc Expo and, and conference. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about well, what that is? I know you mentioned at the be beginning of show. Um, what is it? Where is it? Is that something that people should be going to? Um, tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Well, yes, def definitely people should be should be going to it. Uh, it is a conference that occurs, uh, I think, the third weekend in July in Woodstock, Illinois. And if you go to max.conferenceandexpo.com, you can get all the, the details. Uh, I went to that the first year that they had it because it's about three hours from my house. And it was right after... Um, What's the one uh, Mac the Macworld conference uh, got put on hiatus? I uh, was telling David yesterday. I, I think we can say official. It's I mean I can't say officially, but I, I think we could maybe call it not on hiatus anymore. I, I think it's not. That's <laughs> yeah. not what it is. Yeah, I had finally convinced somebody to go with me. I was going to fly out there, and then was really bummed when I found out that it wasn't wasn't happening. And so when I found out about Mac stock, I'm like I'm going to go down. 
Uh, and I went down and it was, it was small the first year, but that was my first experience with the physical Mac and Apple community. And it was amazing. And I was hooked the next year. I convinced the organizers to let me speak on OmniFocus. Uh, and the year that's when I met, uh, when I met Don, um, I'm speaking again this year and the, it just keeps getting better and better. So I mentioned Brett, uh, shared last year. He's speaking again this year, along with uh, Gene McDonald, Kelly Gamon, Adam Christensen, uh, a lot of big names in the Apple community. Um, sounds like you guys aren't going to be there, which is kind of unfortunate. Maybe next year, you know, as this thing just keeps getting getting bigger. I think it really is, even though I wasn't at the Macworld conference. Uh, it sounds like it is becoming the replacement that so many people have been looking for. Yeah, I am gonna. I cannot make it this year. Uh, I've got a scheduling commitment, but next year in 2019, I have every intention of going because everybody I know that goes tells me how much fun they have. And I miss being around Mac users. I mean, I go to WWDC every year and that's really fun. And, but it's a developer heavy kind of Apple businessy kind of conference. Macworld was different. It was the users and, and I'm really glad that this thing exists. And I'm glad it's successful, but I, I intend to go there next year. And one of the cool things about it is it doesn't matter whether you are a beginning Mac user or you are a quote unquote Mac power user. Uh, when I spoke last year, uh, I was able to get a ticket for my wife to come, who is definitely not techie, nerdy in any way, shape or form. And she was a little bit nervous about coming because she's like, well, this isn't really my scene. I'm not going to learn anything from it. But she had the same experience, not as an Apple necessarily user. I mean, she has... Uh, a MacBook adorable at, at home that she uses and she does some photography stuff. She's a, a wedding photographer. So she does all her editing on a Mac, but she's not steeped in the technology like probably the, the listeners of this show are, but she got a lot out of it and she loved, loved the community and how nice everybody was. She was just blown away by it and she really had a, had a good time. So I would just recommend that, that if you are able to go, definitely go because regardless of where you are on that spectrum, there's going to be something there that that's really going to help you out. And the theme this year is productivity. So <laughs> uh, Chuck Joyner, Allison Sheridan, I mean, everybody who's speaking there, they're all speaking on on this, this theme of, of productivity and, and figuring out, you know, not just how to do things more efficiently, but also do things effectively using your, your Apple technology. Yeah. Okay. So if you're in the greater Illinois area, or if you want to get on an airplane, uh, check it out. It's macstockconferenceandexpo.com. That's a mouthful. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. But but go and say hi to Mike when you go this year and have fun. And, and uh, I'll see you guys there next year. I'm looking forward to attending. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by Squarespace. Enter offer code MPU at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and a whole lot more. Whether you want to create an online store, a portfolio, a blog, just about anything, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. And best of all, there's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, no upgrade needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. You don't have to be the IT manager. Squarespace just has you covered. And they have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They let you quickly and easily grab a 
unique domain name, and they have a bunch of award-winning templates that are beautifully designed for you to show off your ideas. So I had a great use case for Squarespace. One of the organizations that I'm a member of had the great idea to make me their membership manager. That means I had to go out, solicit, and collect applications from members. And this was a horrible process. For years, it's been done by paper. And I would get these hand-scrawled applications that were, you know what, faxed in sometimes. How archaic is that? Well, with Squarespace, I created a brand new website for this organization. It looks great. I linked it up with all of our social media accounts. And best of all, I took our membership process online. So people can apply directly through the website. They can send in a form with all the required questions. That form then sent, takes their application, sends it off by email, and connects it to a Google Doc through the back end. So now we're already pre-populating our membership database. It is amazing and has made my job a whole lot easier easier. And Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month. But you don't even have to worry about that because you can start a free trial with no credit card required by heading over to squarespace.com. And when you decide, mention offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for Mac Power users. So thank you to Squarespace for their support. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Mike, one thing you told me when we were getting ready for today's show, I, I knew you had kids. I didn't realize you have five kids. <laughs> yeah, I've got four boys, 10, 8, 6, and 4. And my wife and I just had our first girl about five months ago. Okay, so we established you're a super geek at the beginning of the show. Uh, how My kids are older, so I feel like I kind of missed out on a lot of the new technology stuff with little kids. Um how are you managing five kids and technology in 2018? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, and really, we're a little bit weird in how we parent our kids with our technology. Uh, and that's basically because I've been now in the productivity space for a little while. And I've, I've seen the, the negative aspects of this um, where, you know, I, I've been on on the planes when uh, the parents and it's not really, it's not really their fault, but I always feel bad for them. You know, like they're trying to, to keep their kids calm. And so they give them an iPad, you know, and that's the thing that keeps them calm. And we just kind of decided like, we don't want our kids to be dependent on that technology. Cause we, we could see very easily how you can get hooked on it. So we made a conscious choice that we want our kids not to be put in a padded room and never be able to use this stuff but to learn to use it the right way. And so uh, the phrase I used yesterday is uh, we want to teach them to create rather than to consume. There's a ton of information. There's a ton of resources on the internet now, and some of it's good, some of it's not so good. But basically, there's no end to the amount of stuff that you can consume on a device. And for kids specifically, they don't know necessarily where the boundaries are. Even if you put up all the parental controls, even if you set up your Eero or your Kirby or whatever to block certain websites, uh, I don't want my kids to just get in that habit of just watching that next video on YouTube. So we want to show them, you know, what's possible with this technology, with these devices, because this is the stuff that's allowed me to do what I do. Uh, I really don't think I would be doing what I am right now if I had not discovered, you know, my, my first Mac was a 17-inch uh, unibody MacBook Pro back in the day, the, the big battleship running Snow Leopard. You know, I, that 
got me started. I remember the first time I dragged a file over an iChat window and I saw the, the green plus icon appear. And I, I wasn't even trying to do that, but I was like, whoa, you, you can do that? <laughs> you know, and that got me thinking, like, what are all the other ways that I can use this to not only just do things more efficiently, but effective? Like, how do I create things with this technology. So that's what we want to teach our kids to do. The big thing that we've done in order to uh, to get them moving in that direction is we've subscribed to this thing I found on Kickstarter called Bitsbox. I believe it's bitsbox.com and it's code it's coding activities that get sent to your kids every month. And so they are learning how to code and I I think that that's awesome. That's going to be one of the skills that is going to be highly sought after in in uh, the, the new economy. And uh, my kids already are, <laughs> have better developer chops than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Move over dad. Let me, let me write that Apple script for you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so how do they work? I mean, what, what do they, I mean, cause your kids are pretty young. I mean, what, what do you get with a bits box? It's a box that comes physically in the mail every month. And there's a, they used to have like a book that came with it, although that's all digital now. And then it had a bunch of just smaller toys and games and things that were around the theme of the box for that month. Uh, we still get the, the boxes with all of the supplemental stuff. So maybe it's, you know, they've got some spy toys or whatever, if, if the, this, this, if it's a spy theme or, you know, sports or, or whatever. Uh, but then they log into this website and they've got an account and you can set up a different account for every kid. Our kids just, just share one. And there are these cards or these books, which will walk them through how to create the code. And if they mess up the code, the program doesn't run the right way. And it tells them there's an error on this line. It's kind of like editing code in sublime text, but it happens in a web browser window. And so they're learning not only how to write this code and what it does, but they're also learning how to troubleshoot it and fix it when something goes wrong. Does it work on iOS as well? That's a good question. I don't know that it works on iOS. I would assume that it does, but we've got an iMac, which is kind of in our kitchen. It's it's central. And so that's what they always use to uh, to use Bitsbox. You know, I, I really like the idea of create versus consume for kids. And and I feel like there's a lot of great apps out there, even if you're not interested in BitsBox. Um, with kids, uh, rather than just give them, you know, the Mickey Mouse video, why not get them the Mickey Mouse phonics program or math program or, you know, something that they can do that's fun for them, but at the same time interactive and requires them to use the parts of their brain that, you know, that need to grow more rather than just sit there passively watching. And I never really thought about it much. Like I said, I don't have little kids in my life, but uh, I think that's really wise what you're doing. Now, now where'd you come across the idea of doing that? Well, I, I knew that there's, like I, like I said, the Apple technologies are, are what have allowed me to do what I do. And I never really had formal training in all these different things, but I loved using my Mac to write music. I loved using it to, to write and create videos and so I wanted to teach my kids that, you know, this, this techno the technology isn't bad, but the, you have to have the right mindset to use it the, the right way. And it doesn't matter whether it's BitSpox or you're teaching them how to make songs using loops in GarageBand or, you know, you're teaching them how to, how to write in Ulysses and then you get done and, and you're able to, to print a book from what, they, what they've created. I think that's the, the key part is you need to show them that this isn't just an exercise. You know, this isn't something that they're, they're doing to burn time. This isn't necessarily something for school because we homeschool our kids as well. 
uh, but it's something that they can use to activate the gifts, the creative gifts that are within them. I mean, my eight-year-old loves to sit and color. He's very, very creative. And it just was kind of, it impressed me one day as I'm reading deep work and I'm studying stuff in the, the productivity space, how, you know, kids, you don't have to teach them to be creative. They naturally are creative. And as you get older, that kind of gets suppressed if you're not careful. And then all of a sudden you look back one day and you're like, well, I'm not an artist. I know that was, that was me. We kind of skipped over uh, this, but at the, at the, in the notes I had written that I have a, a 10.5 inch iPad pro and I use it for sketch noting. Well, I used to, I used to draw, but there was a long period where I didn't draw. And so when I wanted to start drawing again, I was terrible at it, <laughs> but uh, I, it's just rinse and repeat, you know, the repetition, once you start doing this, you just keep doing it and you keep getting better and better and better. And if it's, uh, if, if nothing else happens other than this is the outlet for this thing and you feel better because you've, you created this thing, that's, that's great. I mean, that's why we, Joe and I started bookworm. We, we really didn't care if anybody ever listened to an episode because we knew that just getting on the, getting on Skype and talking about it was going to provide value for us personally. Uh, and so that's what I want to teach my kids to do, not to, uh, not to judge necessarily what they're creating because, you know, they created the song in garage band and, you know, they, they messed it up and, and it's, it's not going to be super, super quote unquote successful according to uh, the world standards. The fact that they made it, that's what makes it successful. Sure. Sure. I remember years ago we had Fraser Spears on the show and he was talking about his one-to-one program at his school. And he was talking about all the work they do in keynote. And at one point I said, well, what about, you know, Microsoft word? And he, he cut me off. I think the best a guest has ever done. He said, I'm making CEOs. I'm not making secretaries. And <laughs> I have never forgot that. But so now how are your kids reacting to, you know, mom and dad kind of guiding them around the use of technology? I mean, do they even know, I guess would be the question. I think that they know because they're, even though they're, they're homeschooled, it's not that they're in a bubble. They never have contact with the outside world. I mean, they know that their friends have devices and they know how their friends use them and they know where we stand on that stuff. Um, but I don't know. I mean, we're kind of at the point now we don't have any teenagers. So I guess I'll report back in a couple of years, whether they resent that approach or not. But <laughs> so far it seems to be working. Good. Good. Well, let us know because I, I am curious to see how this goes, and I'm I think you're onto something. G- getting back to we did skip the sketch noting in your your iPad 10.5 inch. Um, we had Mike uh, Rodia on the show again years ago uh, talking about sketch noting. I use that technique as well. I even use it for like oral arguments for a lawyer, which is oddball, but it it works for me. Um, and one of the things I've always loved about sketchnoting is that you don't have to be good at it. It's not, that's not the point is to create, you know, art you're going to hang on the wall, but it's just a way to help yourself figure things out. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, how you're doing it. Sure. Uh, well, I use uh, the 10.5 inch iPad Pro with the increased uh, refresh rate, the 120 hertz and an Apple pencil. And I use GoodNotes to do my sketching and that's really been the key is that increased refresh rate. There's no lag whatsoever. So I went from doing it all by hand to doing it on my iPad. And I, I really, really enjoy it. I think it's the, the perfect size, the perfect device for that sort of thing. 
Uh, and like you said, the the value in sketch noting for me is not that I'm creating this work of art that I'm going to hang in a museum somewhere. In fact, uh, I'm a little bit hesitant to share my my sketch notes because I don't think they're all that great. But if you compare them to the first ones I did, it was basically a stick figure and a bunch of words. You know, you can see that I've I've gotten a lot better. Um, and in fact, the book that Mike Rohde had written, that's really what made it click for me because he mentioned in there... I forget what the exact statistic was, but basically you retain more when you sketch note. And that makes sense because I've also read articles which said that um, if you were to type things digitally as a student, you're not going to remember as much. You tend to copy, you tend to, uh, to put down what's spoken word for word, but you don't really synthesize it. It doesn't get inside of you. Uh, and when you have to do that physically with a pen and paper, you can't keep up. So you have to, as the person is talking, synthesize what they're saying and then put down really the key ideas. And in my opinion, sketch noting is that to a whole nother level, because uh, as you're creating these pictures, you're not able to make them fast enough to keep up with everything that the person is saying. So you're really just trying to think through these things and really distill the main points, the main ideas of what they're talking about, and then capture that visually. And I find that that means that I remember a lot more from these talks, even if I capture less. The the points and the stories that I'm able to uh, to capture, those stick with me. Katie, did you ever try any of that, the sketchnoting stuff? You know, I tried to get into sketchnoting, and I am just such such a horrific artist. Uh, I wouldn't even dare to use the word artist. Um, it it I spent more time trying not to embarrass myself with my notes than I, I I certainly wasn't retaining as much. So it might be something that I try to come back to, but it's it's just not not my cup of tea. Mike, what app are you using on the iPad? Are you using the Apple Notes app, or are you using a third party app with that? I use GoodNotes, and that really is, uh, I think, the ideal sketchnoting application. I know people who use like Paper by 53, and there's a bunch of different ones. But uh, GoodNotes has a bunch of tools built in which make it really easy. So they've got uh, a button that you can press where you can just kind of outline rough shapes, and it'll kind of snap to the grid. So you don't have to draw a perfect circle, but when you t toggle that feature on, you can draw a circle and it will make it a perfect circle for you. Oh, maybe that's what I need. <laughs> yeah. And to be honest, I mean, I, you, I'm not joking when I say that my first sketch note was literally a stick figure and a bunch of words. I mean, if anybody should be ashamed of their, their artistic prowess at the beginning, it, it was me. <laughs> what, what I found is that like, if you... Uh, David, you talked about uh, on the Free Agents podcast, not having uh, ha having all of your thoughts be public, basically. Well, that, that's basically what I did with my sketch notes. I documented the journey and I'm like, hey, guys, look it. I'm awful at this <laughs> and there's nowhere to go but up. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing about good notes that's really helpful is you can zoom in. So like if you're like I, I find that I'm I'm a bad artist, but. I also, when I'm on a screen where, or even just a piece of paper where I'm trying to draw in a very small bit of space, my skills are uh, even even worse. You know, when I when I when I constrain myself. So one of the nice things on the iPad and GoodNotes is you can actually blow it up to fill the screen with just a little portion of the piece of paper that you're writing on, and then you have more space to work with. You can draw it nice. And then when you shrink it back down, actually it forgives a lot of sins that way. It, it looks a lot better. 
Very true. Yeah. And uh, also, I like the the highlighters in GoodNotes. So if you were going to draw a person, you know, and you want them to be wearing a red shirt, you don't have to color in the whole shirt as red. You can just draw the outline of the shirt and then you can use the highlighters, which uh, are, they cover more, more area and you can obviously adjust the the pen sizes, but then you can just kind of shade in there real quickly. And it's, uh, it's a lot more, uh, a lot more effective than, you know, trying to color it all in by hand using, using different pens. So Mike, what are some examples of situations where you, where you, where you do a sketch note? I typically sketch note whenever I attend a talk, uh, whenever I am at church and my pastor is preaching, I will use sketch notes, uh, really anything where I'm not actively participating in the discussion. I tend to use sketch notes. I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about the priests as I was growing up. If I had brought an iPad in and sketch noted, I think they would have like <laughs> beat me, but I'm not sure. Yeah, everybody probably thinks you're there watching YouTube or something. But um, I was going to ask, what do you do with the sketch notes? A lot of people keep these physical journals and then put them on the shelf. And particularly if you're sketch noting and you're a, a little bit better artist than I am, those can be really nice mementos and, and pieces to keep and, and go back and look on. But if you're creating them on the iPad, one of the problems with creating these digital documents is it's so easy for them just to get lost in the, the ether out there. Do you do anything to keep these or to archive them or do anything with them? Yes, uh, actually, I have separate notebooks in GoodNotes, and periodically I will go into GoodNotes and export my sketches as PDF files, and then I will attach those to day one entries. I use day one for a lot of different things. Uh, I use it as my my journal. Obviously, I've got a, a daily reflection template that I've got a, a, a workflow built on iOS where I enter a bunch of a bunch of responses and then it creates a markdown formatted table so I can go into day one and I can just look at all of those things real easily. I've got another journal specifically for the sketch notes. I've got another journal for quotes uh, that I want to save. I've got another journal which is just photos that I've got an IFTTT integration so it'll pull in whatever I post on Instagram and uh, put it into day one. So day one is kind of my, my place for all of the stuff that I want to keep uh, specifically the, that's where the sketch notes go. Can I go off on a little tangent for a minute? I, um, I went and I, I subscribed to day one this year and I'm making a real effort to diary my life more. And I did the same thing Mike's describing is I made separate journals. I have a journal for, you know, stuff about Max Barkey and stuff about productivity and stuff about, you know, my day to day life. And as, as I'm a couple months into it, I'm realizing I've got great entries spread out among five different journals. <laughs> I'm not sure that was a good idea. I don't think my life's interesting enough to populate three or four at a time. Uh, how long have you been doing it? Is, is the idea of these multiple journals working out for you? Uh, it is. And I subscribe as well. And really the reason that I've got all of these different journals is with the subscription and you've got unlimited journals when you have a subscription, really, why not? Because you can always go into all entries and see everything. Uh, and so, you know, I haven't been subscribed long enough to know that, yes, for sure, this is the format that I'm going to use forever, but it seems to be working pretty well for me. And I really like the fact that you can tell what something is simply by the color of the journal that you've put it in. So all of my photos are green. 
All of my sermon notes are red. All of my reflection templates, you know, th- those are blue. Uh, I just feel like that's a, another level of filtering, which is possible by using the different journals that you would lose if you use something like tags. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I'll tell you, I am really enjoying the experiment. I'm finding, even though it's a little extra time to make these entries, sometimes repeating things I've already written down somewhere else, uh, I really am enjoying the experience, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what this looks like after having done it a year. One of the most powerful things for me from the journaling experience is one of the questions that I ask myself is, what are you grateful for? And in the productivity space, there's a lot written about gratitude and, and meditation, but really like the takeaway, the too long didn't read version <laughs> is that gratitude instantly can change your state. So I can, I find that if I've had a rough day and I get, I, I get home and it's late and I'm pull up that question and I have to think about what am I grateful for? It can instantly snap me out of a negative mood uh, because it, it just, you, you can't express gratitude and be angry. You can't express gra- in my experience anyways, you can't express gratitude to somebody and be angry at them at the same time, which is one of the things that my wife and I have incorporated into. We've got these family meetings that we try to do every week. We try to express gratitude to each other every time that we do that. Uh, and, and I know that like there've been times when it's time to do our meeting and things didn't go exactly according to plan. And I don't feel like expressing gratitude, but the moment that I do express gratitude, like it instantly changes the atmosphere. You know, I, I think it was from you guys, one of the books you guys told me to read, um, um, bookworm told me to have a, I call it a thankfulness. I, at the end of the day, I write down something I'm thankful for and it really works. I mean, it, it sounds like hippie nonsense, but it works surprisingly well. It totally works. And when you've got that chronicled now and you go back through day one, every month, every six months, every year, whatever, and you see all of these things that you have to be grateful for, it's that to the nth degree. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by FreshBooks. Start your 30-day free trial now by heading over to freshbooks.com slash MPU. So to all you freelancers out there, or maybe we should call you free agents, you know how important it is to make smart decisions for your business. Well, our friends at FreshBooks can save you up to 192 hours, how does that sound, with their cloud accounting software for freelancers that's ridiculously easy to use. You can do this by simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, getting paid online. FreshBooks has drastically reduced the time it takes for over 10 million people to deal with their paperwork. And FreshBooks has a totally new notification center. It is like your personal assistant. No matter what's going on, you'll always know what's changed with your business since you last logged in and what needs to be dealt with pronto. Think of it like mission control for your business. And one of my favorite features, FreshBooks automates late payment reminders, so you can spend less time chasing down your payments and more time working your magic. And best of all, you don't have to be the bad guy. You know that your payments are getting followed up on because FreshBooks will automatically generate a reminder and your clients just know, yeah, hey, I haven't paid you yet. They need to get on it. If you're listening to this podcast yet and you haven't used FreshBooks, now is the time to try it. FreshBooks are offering an unrestricted 30-day free trial to listeners of this show with no credit card required. All you have to do is go to freshbooks.com slash MPU 
and enter Mac Power Users in the How Did You Hear About Us section. I've used online billing for my business, and I can tell you it was the best thing I ever did. My clients loved it, I loved it, and best of all, I got paid so much faster. So go check it out, freshbooks.com slash MPU, and enter Mac Power Users in the How Did You Hear About Us section. And thank you to FreshBooks for their continued support of our show. I want to ask a little bit about your your book club. We talked a little bit about the podcast, but I want to talk a little bit about reading more. One of my goals has been to read more books, um, both fiction and nonfiction, but primarily more nonfiction. You know, they say one of the great qualities of, of readers is, I'm sorry, one of the great qualities of leaders is that they read a lot. And reading, a, what are you reading, a book a week or a book every two weeks, but you got a, a gap book in the middle. So, I mean, how many books do you think you, you go through in a year and how do you get through them all? Do you have any hacks for that? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, well, when I started the exercise with Joe, uh, I really wasn't reading much, and that's kind of the incentive behind it. We both recognized that we wanted to read more, but we weren't doing it. So if you want to read more, just have somebody hold you accountable and record your conversations and say you're going to do them every two weeks. <laughs> that works. <laughs> uh, what I've discovered is the more that I've done it, the more I enjoy it. Uh, when I was on vacation a couple weeks ago, I brought, we were gone nine days. I think I brought six books with me and I finished them before we came home. Uh, it's just, it's, it's awesome. And the thing that I enjoy about it the most, specifically the nonfiction books, uh, and this is an idea that I originally got from Austin Cleon. He wrote a book called Steal Like an Artist. Anybody who is creative has probably experienced the... Oh, experience that thing where you feel like a fraud and nothing that you create is original. <laughs> uh, that paralyzed me for a long time. I'm a musician. I've played violin since I was five. I play guitar on the worship team at my church. I like to write songs, but I would get so discouraged when I would write something and then realize that, oh, I just stole that chord progression from this other song or that melody line isn't original. And so in that book, uh, Austin Cleon talks about how when you create something, what you're doing is you're connecting dots in ways that haven't been connected before. And so that means that whatever you're creating is not going to be something that is a bolt of lightning inspiration, completely original. All you're doing is you're rearranging the inputs. And so if you want to have more creative ideas, just get more inputs. Uh, and I think that reading is a great way to do that. The more books that you, you read, the more inputs that you have, the more potential tools in your creative toolbox when you sit down to write a blog post or create a video uh, or whatever. And so once I started doing that and made a habit of that and I saw the effect that it had on me, you know, where I can sit down now and say, okay, I'm going to crank out a, a blog post on whatever topic. I've got enough to draw from where it doesn't feel like... I have to go back, you know, it's, I don't have to feel like there's, there's nothing there for me to work with. Uh, that's, that feeling is, is awesome. And it's, uh, it, it makes me want to keep going. There's a great video series called everything is remix that I'd recommend everybody watch. If you haven't, um, I believe it's on YouTube, but it, it makes the same point, you know, that, that we're all in this sea of ideas and it's, it's our ability to take and assemble them in different ways that allows us to find something new and awesome. But you kind of dodged the question because <laughs> Katie, Katie, Katie wants to read more. I was going to get back to that. Yes. Yeah, you didn't really tell her. So how are you getting – how did you read six books on vacation with five kids? <laughs> well, we spend a lot of time at the pool. <laughs> um, 
but uh, I've found that the more that I read, the faster I get at reading. And so once you get a little bit of momentum, it's easy to maintain that. At least it has been for me. Uh, one of the things that maybe I would recommend to get started is to look for something to read that is going to solve a problem that you have. That's something that I picked up from a friend of mine, Brandon Wentland, uh, where that's how he started reading more books is he recognized that, you know, I've got this thing that I need to solve and I don't know how to solve it. So I'm going to read a book, which is going to teach me how to do that because there's a lot of books written by a lot of really smart people who, you know, you don't have to figure this all out for yourself. You can benefit from their experience. Yeah, and that's kind of what I did, and I'd recommend anybody who's interested in this stuff. Uh, if you've got a specific problem, head over to the Bookworm podcast and and check out a, a couple of their podcasts for books that kind of deal with the problem that's on your mind. My my big problem that I finally realized last year was just making time for my priorities. And once I knew that was the issue, I kind of targeted a few of your podcasts and went and read you know five or six books, and that's a great way to get yourself rolling. Yeah, one thing, the technology angle to this uh, that I've done recently is I've started documenting everything that I am reading that stands out to me as I'm reading these books in a MindNode file. So I'll download a picture of the book, put that in the middle, and then I'll flesh out the general structure of the book and then all of the quotes and things that I want to remember, the action items, like I want to apply this to my own life. Like I'll put all of that in a MindNode file. And I love going back into MindNode and seeing all of that information, which is now searchable. So I can really go back and I can re I don't have to reread the entire book. I can reread the the mind map that I created and get the the gist of it. How are you reading these books? Are you uh... Are you reading them in physical book format and then follow up? What do you do with all these books? Are you reading them on Kindle, on iPad, or are you listening to some of them? And there's no wrong way, I don't think, to read the book. Uh, well, I know you mentioned that you didn't like having to move all of your books, but <laughs> I really like... No, but I think I'm pretty pretty well set here for a while, so you know. <laughs> I really like physical books. Uh I have had a Kindle in the past with the idea that this is a dedicated reading device, but still having an electronic gadget in my hand just felt a little bit weird. You know, what's the difference between that and that and an iPhone uh, or, you know, an iPad. And so uh, I have gotten in the habit of carrying a physical book with me just about everywhere. And when I've got a few minutes in between meetings or I don't want to start a new project yet, I'll take out my book and I'll, I'll read for a little bit, um, which is another strategy that you could use to, to read more. But I really like having the physical books. And then I've got a, uh, an office that I'm working on finishing as we're recording this <laughs> in my basement. And I have a, a bookshelf, a custom built bookshelf on, on the entire back wall. So I don't know how long that's going to have space in it. But right now I have plenty of room for all of my physical books. Yeah, I like the idea of writing in the margins. That's what I used to always do with physical books. But I think the the nerd side of me has has got over that. And I, I, I've done all the reading, especially as I've gotten a little more aggressive on this stuff lately. I just bought a Kindle and I read them all on the Kindle. It works great. I, I love the fact that I've got all of those books. Plus, you know, it saves the highlights I make um, all in a device that is about half the size of an iPad mini. It's just amazing. Yeah, there's a lot to like about the Kindles, and I know that there's even services that can take your highlights and put them automatically for you into Evernote or something like that. Um, but I just, 
if I, I like being able to say when I am when I have this physical thing in in my hands, this is the only thing that I can do. I found with a Kindle and you've got a thousand books on there that I had a tendency to jump between different books. And that was just almost as bad as, as uh, having an iPad. So just having the one book where, you know, I'm going to muscle through this because I have to talk about it on bookworm, uh, that, that created the momentum to stick with it. And after I did that with 10, 12, 15 books, it became a lot easier. Yeah. And I think that the idea of summarizing, especially nonfiction stuff, now you're doing it in a mind note, but you could do it with a pencil and a piece of paper, or you could sketch note it, or you could do it in an omni outline or, or whatever floats your boat. But I think that is such a great idea. Now, now you make that while you're reading it, correct? Yep. So I do all of my mind note stuff uh, on my iPhone as I'm reading the book. So when something stands out to me, I will then take my iPhone out, open up my note, put my my thought in, uh, and then go back to, to reading. And I don't think that approach would have worked at the beginning, <laughs> but it works now. I, I, I'm not tempted to go into Twitterific or check my email or anything like that. Um, but yeah, and so what ends up happening is I've got all of this stuff in my MindNote file at the end, but a lot of it's been entered on the small iPhone keyboard. And so that's why I'm hesitant to share that stuff because there's a lot of typos and things in there as well. Yeah. So I, the way I was doing it was with nonfiction stuff is I'd, I'd highlight as I went, whether it was on iPad or Kindle. And then afterwards I'd go through and look at my highlights and I would just write out a sheet of notes on the book, like a one pager, my own summary. I just hand write it out. And the, um, I was listening to you, this is my confession. I, I was listening to you talk to Joe about this on one of your bookworm shows. And when you explained that you're doing this mind node, it was like, how come I have not had this guy on the show yet? <laughs> that was the moment, <laughs> Joe. That's the moment, Mike, where I'm like, we got to get him on the show like soon. <laughs> so I thought it was very clever. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, to be honest, that was kind of inspired. Like I was dabbling with that prior, but one of the books that we covered was How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler. And it's all about getting the most out of the book that you you read. And he's advocating because it was written in like 1920 something for using all of these different shorthand notes in the the margins for specific things. And I realized at that point that I could do that in my note, then it would be searchable. I want to follow up on one final topic, and you mentioned it briefly, and that is your co-working space. We haven't had a lot of guests on Mac Power users who use a dedicated co-working space. A lot of people who work out of their homes, people who do the coffee shop and, and those types of things. But tell me a little bit about the, the thought process behind why you set up a dedicated co-working space and what that does for you. Sure. Well, uh, what I found is that where where I live, which is Appleton, Wisconsin, it is not a very big area. The whole city, I think, is probably about 100,000 people. There is not a very big tech community. There is not a very big productivity community. Uh, and so the people who... Would, you know that you're going to have like 10 people email you because they heard you on this podcast and say, hey, I'm in Appleton, Wisconsin as well. They should all come hang out at Appleton Coworking and we could go get coffee. <laughs> uh, but that's really what drew me to this specific space is that these are kind of my people. <laughs> uh, and then add to that where I am, the fastest internet up until about six months ago that I could buy that I regardless of how much money I wanted to throw at this problem was 50 down and five up 
when you're doing podcasts and specifically webinars and uploading videos all the time, five up is sometimes not going to cut it. And so the co-working space that I found uh, actually has a fiber internet connection. And so I joined it just the, you know, the, the shared space membership. So I could come in once in a while, I could get around some other creative people and I could upload some videos, uh, that, kind of kept progressing. I'm now the community manager for Appleton Coworking because I just really like the community that comes from this environment. What a lot of people don't realize about coworking is that they, they think that they're going to get there and it's just going to be like the coffee shop. There's going to be a bunch of noise. You're not going to be able to focus. But the people who are members of a coworking space are there to work. I mean, everybody, at least at my coworking space, like they're paying for this because they want an environment where they can sit down and work. And so it's kind of like going to the gym. If you want to, uh, if you want to get in shape, once you walk through the doors and you see everybody else working out, like you're not going to back out at that point. And so if you're in North central, Northeast Wisconsin, and you're a creative person who works from home, uh, especially if you've got kids and things are noisy once in a while. Yeah, five like, kids. Let's just make that the underlying statement of this, this conversation. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, even people who don't have kids, they find that, you know, I can work from home, I can do my work anywhere. That's great, except that when I'm at home, I don't feel like doing my work. <laughs> and so you go to a co-working space and now there's the motivation because everybody that is there is is working and they're all doing cool stuff. So um I have a, you know, I've, I mentioned I'm in an office right now, so I've got a door that I can close and I can leave all my gear set up, which is kind of nice. So I just throw my MacBook Pro in my backpack when I'm done and, and I'm ready to go home. When I come back, I can plug it in and everything's ready to go. So you, you have a dedicated office in your co-working space? Yes. Yep. Yeah, that's quite expensive here in Southern California to go that route. But in a small town, it's probably totally reasonable. And so do you, do you go there every day, multiple days a week? Uh, do you leave stuff set up there? I do leave stuff set up. So I've got uh, in my office a uh, sit-stand desk. It's an electric desk with a custom um, barnwood top that a friend of mine made. And so I've got my, my podcast set up is here, my external monitor. Everything is hooked up to my OWC Thunderbolt 3 dock. I literally have to put my MacBook Pro on my rain desk stand and plug in the one Thunderbolt three cable and everything is good to go. I even created a keyboard maestro macro, which changes my keyboard profile because my DOS keyboard is not a Mac specific keyboard. And so the option and command keys, I believe are flipped. And so when keyboard maestro recognizes that I plugged into this dock, it loads up a different profile and carabiner elements and it flips those keys around for me so i don't even realize it keyboard maestro solves all the little problems in life when you're on your mac <laughs> yeah uh, keyboard maestro is is amazing and you don't even necessarily even need to know what all of the different components are to it because there's a ton of different actions a bunch of different triggers it can be a little bit overwhelming when you first get started with it but there's also the record button. So you can literally just press record, do what you want to do, and then see if it works. And you might be surprised how often it does. Well, Mike, you know what? We got about halfway through your outline. <laughs> so uh, you know what that means, right? You're, you're going to come back. All right. Sounds good. Yeah, for sure. All right. All right. We got a commitment. Mike's going to come back. Uh, for those folks out there that want to learn more about you, Mike, where do they find you at? 
Well, you can go to mikeschmitz.me for links to all of my current projects. I don't blog a whole lot there, but everything I'm currently involved in uh, is there. Most of my writing is over at asianefficiency.com. And, and let me just interject there. Schmitz is with no D. It's S-C-H-M-I-T-Z. Correct. T is in Tom, Z is in Zebra. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Bobblehead Joe, and you can find the screencast stuff over at Screencast Online. And I recommend everybody go check out Mike's podcast uh, over at Bookworm, as I keep keep talking about through the show. That's my favorite one that you're making. But you also do the productivity show over at Asian Efficiency. And if you're a Screencast Online member, you can get some of Mike's magic screencasts there as well. And uh, we are the Mac Power Users. You can find us on Twitter. We are um, at Mac Power Users. Katie's at Katie Floyd. I am actually, Katie, you're not doing much of the Twitter stuff anymore, right? I'm there occasionally. All right. And uh, and I'm at Max Sparky. Uh, you can find us on relay.fm slash MPU. And did I miss anything, Katie? Well, the Facebook group. Oh, there's a, always fun to us on Facebook. There's so much going on there. We have a lot to talk about with Facebook group. There's polls going on in there now. Lots of information sharing. So if you have any questions about your Mac or iOS device, go in there. You're going to find a good, friendly family to help you out. Thanks to our sponsors as well. Um, and we'll see you all next week.